that in our modern, sophisticated, technological world, a few things do I find as frustrating as watching the final episode of a season on TV only to have it end in a cliffhanger. Has anyone had that experience? Uh, I, I know, forgive the hyperbole, first world problems, right? And yet, think back to the last time you experienced that, when your favorite TV show took the last episode and left the story unresolved. But I find that that's a little bit like what we did here leading up to Christmas. It's frustrating to come to the end of a season because you know they're just leaving it unfinished so that you'll come back and watch the next season, right? It's also frustrating because you've been building to a climax of the story and you're wondering how things are all going to resolve only to find yourself stuck in that tension, the story unresolved, the conclusion unfinished. And even more frustrating, you know that you'll have to wait six to eight months for the next season to come out and you finally get resolution. And to add injury to insult, by that time you'll likely have forgotten everything going on in the story and so you'll have to watch that episode that's previously seen on you know how all the seasons start with previously on this show, and they recap all of the important parts of the previous season. Uh, but it's for this reason that I feel like I owe you at least two apologies in our study in 1 Corinthians. The first is for collectively leaving us on a cliffhanger as we wrapped up chapter 10 last year. After critiquing the church in Corinth for 10 chapters, Paul finds himself at the beginning of chapter 11 and says this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then we pause for Christmas. Just at the moment that the book in many ways is coming to a climax and Paul is beginning to give us some help on what fixing this broken church would look like, we pause for Christmas. Which brings me to my second apology. Because of the long break and because there's enough new people here in the services that weren't with us in 1 Corinthians 1, I felt it was appropriate to step back and see how far we've come. To do a bit of a review, a bit of as previously seen on in our time together this morning. But before we get into that and before we review the first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians, I want to take a moment and I want to pray for God's guidance in our time together this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we celebrate what we've already sung about the incredible realities that we have the opportunity to participate in as a result of Christ's gift. Lord, we pray that in our time together this morning that you would be glorified, that your word would be taught faithfully, that your people would be encouraged. Father, help us to be faithful as a church to the task you've called us to, to the mission of the church. Lord, help us to glorify you in everything we say and do and in everything we do when we come together as well. So, Father, in our time together this morning, we just pray that you would be lifted up, that Christ would be exalted, that you would be honored, and that everything would be about you and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, one of the things I want to note here real quickly, for those of you that were with us in 1 Corinthians 10, you'll remember that Paul was primarily concerned with the divisions that were taking place within the church at Corinth. Flip back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. He leads off with this concern by mentioning it right off the gate after his introduction, which Troy read in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul looks at this church that was fractured and broken and divided, 
And he says, my desire, my heart for you is that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Now, I want to give you a fair warning here. I am going to basically break all of the preaching rules that I've been studying in seminary in our time together this morning. You're like, why are we helping Brad go through school if he's just going to ignore everything that he's learning? But we're going to walk back through 1 Corinthians 1 through 10, and I want to give us 11 evidences of a broken church, 11 manifestations, if you will, in this church in Corinth, heart and attitude issues that manifest in the broken, divisive problems that were present in the Corinthian church. And I want us to walk through those, not just to critique the church in Corinth, but to do a bit of a heart check on ourselves as well. And to ask ourselves, are any of these attitudes, are any of these priority problems relevant for us today as well? Some of you will have gone through the first 10 chapters and you will remember some of what we talk about, but follow along with me nonetheless. First evidence of a broken church that we see here in 1 Corinthians, depending on men rather than Christ. Evidence number one. Let me look at 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13. Read along with me. Paul goes on. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? As you'll recall, what was going on in the church in Corinth here is you'd had various good pastors and teachers that had come and taught this church in Corinth. You'd had Paul, and you'd had Apollos, and you'd had Peter. And as a result, the church was claiming allegiance to whoever their favorite pastor, their favorite teacher, their favorite leader was. They were saying, I follow Peter, or I follow Paul, or I'm allied with this individual. Fundamentally, the Corinthians were more concerned with aligning with their favorite pastor or leader than with honoring Christ in their church. And we still struggle with this today, don't we? Wrestling with depending on men rather than on Christ. Do you find yourself fully devoted to your favorite online preacher, to that one individual that no matter what they write or no matter what they preach, you'll follow it? Or chronically church hopping, looking for the best guy, thinking that if you can just sit under the right teacher, everything will suddenly click in your spiritual life? Or maybe you find yourself anxious about our pastoral search, thinking if we can just find the perfect pastor, everything will be better at Faith Bible. All the while, we fail to recognize that every one of those men represent God's grace in our lives, that they are not the fundamental problem or the fundamental solution. They are a tool in the hand of God. They are a representation of God's grace to us. And so Paul highlights this dependence on men rather than on Christ. Is that something you struggle with? Is there that evidence of brokenness in your life this morning? Or maybe we find ourselves less attached to one individual and more interested in ministry methods or programs at a church, which brings us to our second evidence of brokenness, boasting in human means rather than God's power. We saw this towards the end of chapter 1 leading into chapter 2. Let me read a portion of that. Chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. We saw, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We remember this as well in the Corinthian church. They were fighting to be perceived by the world and by each other as wise, as powerful, as influential. They wanted to be the movers and shakers in their community. The Corinthians were more concerned with their status and their abilities than celebrating God's undeserved work in their lives. God had done an amazing work in them, and God was doing an amazing work through them, but they were more concerned by the way they were perceived by each other and the outside world than they were with what God was doing in their midst. And many of us probably resemble this as well. We think if we can just find the right church, that will solve our problems. That will kickstart our spiritual maturity. If we can just find the best programs to put our children in, that will change their hearts. Ultimately, finding ourselves more reliant on human methods than on the power of God. Do you wrestle with boasting in human means rather than God's power? With looking to people more than looking to your Savior when it comes to spiritual maturity? And much like this evidence is Paul's third concern. We saw this in chapter 2 and 3. Evidence number 3 of a broken church. Relying on human or on worldly wisdom rather than the Holy Spirit. Let me read a portion of that from chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to read through 3, verse 3. The natural person does not or accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Paul goes right at the heart of the issue. He says, Corinthian church, you are consumed with knowledge. You are consumed with the eloquence of the speakers that you have. This would have been very typical of the day. We talked about this. The Corinthian church, the Roman environment, was very infatuated with eloquent speakers and wise words and traveling sages and philosophers. And this Corinthian church was more concerned with fleshly, worldly issues than with the wisdom and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. They were more concerned with what was right in front of them than they were with what the Spirit was doing in them. They were more concerned with fleshly matters than they were with keeping in step with the Holy Spirit of God that they had been given. And we critique the Corinthians. But let me ask you, Are you more consumed by the practical realities of life than you are by the spiritual ones? Are you more concerned with the growth of your retirement account than the growth of your godliness? 
Are you actively seeking the mind of Christ and open to the leading of the Spirit in your life? Do you wrestle with relying on worldly wisdom rather than on the Holy Spirit? And this sort of thinking will inevitably lead to a short-sightedness in your spiritual walk, which brings us to evidence number four, choosing immediate honor rather than future reward. We saw this in chapter five. Hopefully you're following along with me in your Bibles and you're touching base on all of these sections. Chapter four, verses one through seven, Paul wrote this. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Their worldly focus had resulted in a short-sightedness. And so Paul holds up himself and the apostles as an example to this church of what faithfulness looks like, how the world responds when people are faithful to the gospel and the mission of the church. He says they will hate it. He says you want an example of what faithfulness looks like in this world. We have been mistreated, we have been abused, we have been laughed at, we have been mocked, We have been scorned, we have been beaten for the name of Christ. Success in this world, according to God's standard, does not mean wealth and prosperity and the world liking you. It means persecution. So he holds himself and the apostles up as this example, and he says, this is what success looks like in ministry. But the Corinthians were more concerned with comparing themselves to each other than they were with working for God's commendation, for God's ultimate approval in their lives. And this can be a challenge for us as well, right? We compare ourselves to others, and the result is either misplaced arrogance or unfounded sadness. Misplaced arrogance because we look at other people, we say, I'm doing pretty well. Things look pretty good in my life. I must be really doing well. Or misplaced sadness as we look at other people and we compare ourselves to them and we say, things don't look very good in my life because of the externals and what I'm seeing. I must not be being faithful because I don't look like that person or we don't look like that church. Or we look at the condition of our lives here in this world and we presume that that equals God's evaluation of our service to him. Have any of you been guilty of that? looking at the state of your life, looking at the condition of your financial accounts or your family, and saying that indicates whether God is happy with me or not. And we can get unnecessarily sad because we don't think things are going correctly, or we can get really proud and arrogant because we're so convinced God is blessing us because we're doing everything right. 
And all the while, we're totally missing that this life isn't all there is. And God's opinion is the only one that truly matters. Not the opinion of other people, not the opinion of our classmates, not the opinion of our peers, not the opinion of our boss. Only God's opinion ultimately matters. Are you choosing immediate honor rather than future reward in this life? Is this evidence of brokenness present in your life? Because we look at these evidences and we're surprised that these attitudes, these thoughts, these actions produce divisions in the church. The church was broken, the church was fracturing because of these attitudes and these actions present in the members of the body. And we see evidence number five of a broken church. Look at chapter five. Tolerating sin rather than pursuing church purity. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in more detail, but let me read just a few of these sections from 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, is it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He describes a little bit about what that means, but jump down to verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Remember what was going on here in the church. There was this individual engaged in this overt, obvious lifestyle of sin, and the church was refusing to address it. Because of their pride and their arrogance, because of their fear of being perceived as weak, they were unwilling to address the sin in the life of this brother. And probably that was indicative of a broader environment where they were unwilling to address sins in each other's life in general. The Corinthians were more concerned with the appearance of holiness than with the actual purity of the church. They were more concerned with this facade of looking like they had it together than they were with actually dealing with sin in their lives and the lives of the brothers and sisters. We addressed this a couple of weeks ago, but let me ask you a few questions related to this. Are you willing to break through the church facade and address sin in the life of a friend? And I don't mean judge sin from afar, from someone you don't have a relationship with, but I mean walk alongside a brother and sister and say, I think that this is present in your life. And are we willing to drop our own mask of perfection and allow someone to speak into our lives that way? Are we willing to pursue holiness together as a church? Is this evidence of tolerating sin rather than pursuing church purity present in your life, in your heart, in this body? Because if this is true, then evidence 6 simply follows from it. Evidence 6 in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, seeking pleasure rather than personal holiness. Seeking pleasure rather than personal holiness. Let me read a few of these sections. First, Paul talks about passion for possessions. Chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why rather not be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. 
to this church, and he says one of these evidences of this disunity, one of these evidences of this brokenness is the fact that you're taking each other to court. You're more concerned with your own possessions and the pleasure that will bring you than you are with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Or maybe it's a passion for pleasure. We saw this later in the chapter. Look at verses 15 through 20 in chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. It says this evidence of this passion for pleasure, this desire for this momentary gratification is more important than your holiness in your life. And don't forget the text that Corey talked about last week, sandwiched right in between these two. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I appreciated what Corey shared, particularly on short notice. I thought he did a great job of speaking to the truth of this text and saying this is the heart of seeking pleasure rather than personal holiness. The Corinthians were more concerned with their personal pleasure than with honoring God through their lives. Whether it be sexual gratification or whether it be possessions and what they had in their bank account and in their home, that was more important. Their pleasure was more important than their personal holiness. And ask yourself, could this be true of me? Are my possessions so important to me that I'm willing to defraud and take others to court to have what I think I deserve? Is momentary pleasure so important to me that I'm willing to risk my family, my personal holiness, and my testimony about what Christ has done in my life for a moment of gratification? Is personal holiness or is personal pleasure more important to me? What you say to that question will evidence where your heart is at. Are you seeking pleasure rather than personal holiness? Or maybe it's a bit more of a subtle form of covetousness. You're not coveting the things of other people. You're not coveting the wife or the husband or the relationship of somebody else. Instead, you find yourself embracing anxious discontentment rather than single-minded devotion. We saw this in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Look there as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read a couple of sections here to highlight what we talked about when we were there. First, verses 17 through 20. Paul says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule for all the churches. Was anyone in the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. He goes on and makes it a bit more practical in verse 32 through 35, addressing the married and the unmarried. He says, I want you to be free from pieties. 
The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Remember what was going on here in the Corinthian church. You had married people who were frustrated with their marriages and they wanted to be single. You had singles who were frustrated with being single wanting to be married. And you had servants who wanted to be free. You had uncircumcised people who wanted to be circumcised. All sorts of different manifestations. But fundamentally, the Corinthians were more concerned with wishing God would change their worldly circumstances than with faithfulness and devotion to him right where God had placed them. They just wanted something to change. They said, God, if you would just change this about my life, then I could faithfully serve you. Then I would be happy. And this is a subtle temptation for all of us, isn't it? Whatever situation of life we're in, married or single, young or old, children or none, we wish God would move us along to something different. We just wish he would get us where we want to be. And every time life moves on, that marker changes and we want something else. And we go, God, if you would just do this in my life, if you would just change my circumstances, then I will be faithful to you. And that moment never arrives. We keep wishing God would do something different rather than focusing on our undivided devotion to the Lord right where we are. Do you find yourself embracing anxious discontentment rather than a single-minded devotion to God? Is this evidence of brokenness true in your life? Again, not shockingly, these attitudes were resulting in disagreements within the church over what was right and what was wrong. They were fighting over morality and they were fighting over what to do and how to handle situations because fundamentally their loyalties were divided. But then Paul got even more personal and started talking about their freedoms. And we see evidence number eight in chapter eight, defending personal liberty rather than brotherly love. Let me read chapter eight, verses nine through 13. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And this was one of those obscure texts that we were like, why are they fighting over meat? Why are they fighting over what they're eating and the food sacrificed to idols? And you've got these stronger and these weaker brothers, and everyone is doing whatever they feel is best for them, inconsiderate of everybody else in the church. They were more concerned with flaunting their Christian freedoms than with loving each other. And this gets personal too. We get so wrapped up in what we want, what we would like to do, what we have the right to, what we wish the church would do for us, that we totally forget how love limits our liberty. How our love for our brothers and sisters limits what we choose to do with our freedom. This was a bit of an awkward week. Remember, this was the week that we got to discuss COVID and the way we approach it. The way we approach these areas of May 
that dictate whether we love our brothers and sisters in Christ more than we love ourselves. You find yourself defending your personal liberty rather than focusing on brotherly love. Because Paul is very clear that all of these behaviors are very unloving. But in addition to just being unloving to our brothers and sisters, they also get in the way of the gospel. They get in the way of the mission of the church. Look at chapter 9, evidence number 9 of a broken church, focusing on personal rights rather than gospel impact. Let's read chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Paul said this, For though I am free from all, I have made self a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To the outsider of the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Remember, Paul here holds up his example, how he surrendered his rights, his right to be married, his right to eat or drink whatever he wanted, his right to be paid by the Corinthians for the Corinthians' sake. He said, I have chosen to lay down all of these rights in order to see the gospel go forward. But the Corinthians were more concerned with their personal preferences than with fulfilling the mission of the church. They were more concerned with gratifying themselves than they were with seeing the gospel go forward. It's so easy to lose sight of the mission of the church, is it not? It is so easy to live for ourselves rather than for our neighbors, to be so focused on our life and the things going on in it that we lose sight of the people God has placed in our lives. It's so easy to focus on ourselves rather than on the lost, It's so easy to invest in our lives rather than in Christ's mission for his church, the great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the world. Do you find yourself losing sight of that reality? Do you find yourself focusing on your personal rights rather than the gospel impact God is calling you to have? Because when we lose sight of what's really important, it's also easy to get flippant about temptation. It's also easy to lose sight of sin in our lives. Evidence number 10, a broken church, toying with temptation rather than fleeing from it. Chapter 10, chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, we read this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Do you remember this? This part of the section, when Paul looked at these stronger brothers, these more mature brothers, and likened their participation in these pagan rituals with participation with demons. He says it's just like what happened back in the Exodus in Israel, where they were celebrating and they were partying and they were living lives totally irrelevant to what God had called them to. That the Corinthian church was more concerned with appearing spiritually mature than actually enduring the temptation they found in their lives. Is this true of you? Are you so arrogant as to think that you are beyond falling to sin, as Paul wrote here? To think that other people have those struggles, but that's not something I would struggle with. 
As Corey read through the section in chapter 6 of that list of different sins where you're like, well, none of that is me. I wouldn't be guilty of any of that. You find yourself thinking that others may need help, but you're fine on an island. You don't need other people. You don't need help. You're okay on your own. And are you willing to make radical changes in your life to mortify sin, or do you find yourself toying with it? Kids, this was one of the hardest lessons I learned in my own life growing up. Thinking that I had the maturity to go right up to the line and I wouldn't step over it. Don't toy with sin. None of us are strong enough in our own power. None of us are wise enough by ourselves to toy with sin. We have to flee from it. And last, but certainly not least, evidence number 11 of a broken church. The last issue we addressed before Christmas, pursuing personal advantage rather than God's glory. Chapter 10 here, right at the end of this section, Paul writes what I think are some very important words. Verse 23 and 24, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbors. Skip down to verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks in the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Everybody in this church was doing precisely whatever they wanted to do. Regardless of how it would hurt or be perceived by their brothers and sisters, regardless of the impact it would have on the watching world, regardless of what effect it would have on those around them, they were more concerned with doing what they liked than what would glorify God. They were just like the period of the judges in the Old Testament, if you're familiar. There's a line in the book of Judges as the nation is degenerating and as the nation is going off the rails nationally and militarily and spiritually, and there is a line in that book that says, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that what was taking place here in this church in Corinth. They were pursuing their personal advantage rather than God's glory. They were more concerned with seeking their own good than with glorifying God by loving and serving each other. And in many ways, this is the crux of the entire book of 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians were in a battle for glory. The question before them was, are we going to give God the glory, or are we going to fight for the glory for ourselves? They were suffering from spiritual arrogance. So convinced of their own maturity so convinced of their own impressiveness, so convinced of their own abilities that they were neither dependent upon God nor caring what happened to those brothers and sisters that were around them. So Paul will spend the remainder of the book reminding them first why they need each other. Chapters 11 through 14, he's going to talk about the corporate congregational of the nature of the church and he's going to plead with the Corinthians, you need each other. You can't ignore each other. You can't 
help but be loving to each other if you recognize this reality. And then in chapter 15, he's going to remind them of the life-changing impact of the gospel and the hope of the resurrection that they have. Because he's trying to bring this church to the point that they recognize they aren't as mature as they think they are. They are fundamentally broken as a church. Which brings us to the key point of what I believe the first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians are all about. Hear this. Spiritual arrogance produces divisions, disagreements, disputes, and disunity because it nullifies grace. We become spiritually arrogant when we're convinced that it was our own amazingness that God chose us to be saved. When we're convinced that it is our own effort that's going to sanctify us. When it's, we're convinced it's our own goodness that's going to ultimately result in our glorification. Fundamentally, this church was broken. They were fractured. They were divided and disunified because they weren't broken in their hearts. They were so proud and so arrogant that they couldn't be broken before God. And so Paul says the solution to your divisions and your fractures and your disputes is you need to be broken in your hearts before the Lord. You need to recognize that everything good that's taking place in your life and in the church is a result of God's doing, not something you can take credit for. Remember where this all started in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read verses 1 through 9 again and hear it in light of this issue of brokenness. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul began this book of 1 Corinthians by focusing on the impact of Christ in the lives of the believers, not by focusing on their achievements. All of the Christian life is a work of God, and dependent upon his grace. And when we feel like we've moved beyond that, when we feel like we've earned our own salvation, or we've justified our existence as believers, <laughs> excuse me, we become guilty of the same sort of spiritual arrogance that was present in this church, thinking that God somehow got a good deal on us, or we've somehow proved our worth to God. The point is, all of this, all of the works, everything that was taking place that was good in the Corinthian church was dependent upon God's grace, is a result of God's power and God's working in them. 
And if that is true, we can be arrogant about none of it. We can take credit for none of it. And these manifestations of brokenness in a church are the result of us taking credit for what only God deserves the glory for. Are these evidences of brokenness present in your life? Are these evidences of brokenness present in our church? If they are, the good news is that's not where it has to stay. The good news is Paul points these things out in order to help the church realize they need to be broken before the Lord. They need to fall on their knees and ask God to do what only he can do, to repent of the ways that they have been sinning against him, and to call on his power to fix their broken hearts. But if you want to hear more about how Paul encourages them to do that, you'll have to tune in next week. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that as a church, we would be convicted from this book. Lord, break our prideful, arrogant attitudes. If there is any arrogance or pride present in this church in the lives of those sitting here today, I pray that you would help us to realize it, that you would give us the courage to repent of it, and that you would call us to faithfulness. Lord, help us to be a church that recognizes that apart from you, we can do nothing that every good thing in our lives is a result of your grace, every good character trait, everything that's mature or holy about us is a result of your work in us. Because, Lord, if we admit that, if we recognize what you have done and what only you can do, then, Lord, you can do amazing things. You have chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Lord, we are so weak apart from you. And we pray that as we continue to study this book, that you would remind us of our need for you, that you would remove the spiritual arrogance that is probably in all of our hearts, and that you would make us a dependent people who stand before you and say, Lord, though we are unclean people of unclean lips, we are here to be sent for your purposes. Do all this for your glory and by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen.